Hello there, caller. What have you got for us today? I heard you were wrapping up your first season, so I decided to surprise you. Well, that's thoughtful of you. What kind of surprise? Well, I'll give you a hint. A gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb. A reward. Uh, children? <laughs> Bingo. Hmm. Well, I've got to admit, you sure surprised me with that one. That's not the typical thing we talk about here. Oh, isn't it? Well, here are stories of three killer kids. Warning, what you're about to hear is true. At Hook Switch Hotline, we delve deep into shocking true crimes, including murder, violence, kidnapping, mutilation, and sexual assault. Not for children or the squeamish. Some will find this podcast disturbing. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Today on Hook Switch Hotline, three children who kill. Mary Bell age 11, was apprehended August 7th, 1968, for the strangulation of Martin Brown, age 4, and Brian Howe, age 3. From then on, Mary was known as the Tyneside Strangler. Craig Price, age 15, was apprehended in the year 1989 for the murders of Rebecca Spencer, age 27, Joan Heaton, age 39, Jennifer Heaton, age 10, and Melissa Heaton, age 9. These brutal deaths immortalized Craig as the Warwick Slasher. Amardeep Sada, age 8, was arrested on May 30th, 2007 for the murder of two infant relatives and an infant neighbor. Today, much about Amardeep is shrouded in mystery. Here are their shocking true stories. May Flora Bell, commonly referred to as Mary, was the daughter of Betty McCricket, and Billy Bell. She was born on May 26, 1957, the village of Corbridge in Northumberland, England. Mary's mother, Betty, was a well-known local prostitute who often left her children in the care of her husband, Billy, when she traveled to Glasgow for work. Betty married Billy when Mary was just an infant, but it's unknown if Billy was Mary's biological father. Billy was a violent alcoholic and a habitual criminal who had an arrest record that included armed robbery. Mary's childhood was one of neglect and sorrow. Mary's aunt Isla McCricket knew her sister wasn't ready to be a mother when within minutes of Mary's birth, Betty shouted at the hospital staff to quote, take the thing away from me, end quote. As a baby, toddler, and young child, Mary frequently suffered injuries and household accidents while alone with her mother, which led her family to believe that either her mother was deliberately negligent or intentionally attempting to harm or kill her daughter. On one occasion, in about 1960, Betty dropped her daughter from a first-floor window. On another occasion, she plied her daughter with sleeping pills. She is also known to have once sold Mary to a mentally unstable woman who was unable to have children of her own, resulting in her older sister Catherine having to travel alone across Newcastle to reclaim Mary from this individual and return the child to her mother's home on White House Road. It's believed that in the mid-1960s, as part of her job as a dominatrix, Betty would encourage clients of hers to perform sadomasochistic sexual abuse on Mary, using the child as a sexual prop. Members of the McCricket family offered to take custody of Mary, but Betty refused. Over the years of abuse, Mary developed behavioral issues like sudden mood swings and chronic bedwetting. She is known to have frequently fought with other children and to have attempted to strangle or suffocate her classmates or playmates on several occasions. On one occasion, she is known to have attempted to block the trachea of a young girl with sand. This violent behavior made many children reluctant to socialize with Mary, who would frequently spend her free time with Norma Joyce Bell, the 13-year-old daughter of a next-door neighbor. Although the girls shared the same surname, they were not related. On Saturday the 11th of May 1968, a three-year-old boy was discovered wandering dazed and bleeding in the vicinity of St. Margaret's Road, Scottswood. 
The child later informed police he had been playing with Mary Bell and Norma Bell atop a disused air raid shelter when one of the girls had pushed him seven feet from the roof to the ground, inflicting a severe laceration to his head. The same evening, the parents of three small girls contacted the police to complain that both Mary and Norma had attempted to strangle their children as they played in a sand pit. That evening, both girls were interviewed about these incidents. Both girls denied any culpability for the air raid shelter incident, claiming they had simply discovered the boy bleeding heavily from a head wound after he had fallen. Further questioned about the attempted strangulation of the three young girls, Mary denied any knowledge of the incident. However, Norma admitted Mary had tried to, quote, throttle each of the girls, stating, quote, Mary went to one of the girls and said, what happens if you choke someone? Do they die? Then Mary put both hands round the girl's throat and squeezed. The girl started to go purple. I told Mary to stop, but she wouldn't. Then she put her hands around Pauline's throat, and she started going purple as well. Another girl, Susan Cornish, came up and Mary did the same thing to her. End quote. On May 25, 1968, the day before her 11th birthday, Mary Bell strangled four-year-old Martin Brown in an upstairs bedroom of a derelict house. On Mary's 11th birthday, she and Norma broke into and vandalized a nursery in nearby Woodland Crescent. The two entered the premises by peeling tiles off the slate roof. They tore books, upturned desks, and smeared ink and poster paints all over the property before escaping. The following day, staff discovered the break-in and vandalism and immediately notified police, who also discovered four separate notes which claimed responsibility for Martin Brown's murder. One of these notes stated, quote, I murder so that I may come back, end quote. Another read, quote, we did murder Martin Brown, fuck off, you bastard, end quote. A third note simply read, fuck off, we murder, watch out, Fanny and faggot, end quote. The final note was more complex, reading, you are mice. Why? Because we murdered Martin Brown. Go, you bet, look out there. Our murder's about by Fanny and Auld faggot, you screws, end quote. The police dismissed this incident as a tasteless and childish prank. In the spring of 1968, two boys aged three and four were found dead nine weeks apart. At first, the deaths appeared unrelated. In fact, the police thought the first child died accidentally. Then it became clear that not only had both boys been murdered, but they had been murdered by another child. The child was Mary Bell. In December of that year, 11-year-old Mary and another girl, Norma Bell, who was 13 at the time, were tried for these crimes. The British public was enraged, especially because Mary Bell seemed without remorse. Five days after strangling the first boy, Martin Brown, the day before her birthday, Mary had knocked on the door of Martin's home and, smiling prettily, asked to see the boy in his coffin. The British press referred to her as a freak of nature and evil-born. Mary was convicted of manslaughter, but the 13-year-old Norma was acquitted. Mary spent the next 12 years in detention and, since her release in 1980, has lived a fairly normal life, raising a daughter though she has had to elude reporters by moving and changing jobs. At one point, Mary tried unsuccessfully to write a memoir. She had also rejected a number of offers from popular magazines, including one in Germany that reportedly offered her 250,000 pounds. Gitta Serini, who had written a book about the trial in 1972, The Case of Mary Bell, and who has become something of an authority on crimes and conscious, in her book, Albert Speer, His Battle with Truth, she exacted from the former Nazi official a tacit acknowledgement of his complicity in the final solution. Mary agreed to sit for a series of marathon interview sessions, which extended over a period of many months, and the result is cries unheard. Gitter writes, 
I believed for many years that if anyone could ever help us to one day understand what can bring a young child to the point of murder and what needs to be done for such children, then with that strange intelligence of hers, which I assumed would endure, Mary would be able to. I always thought the day would come when she herself, without outside pressure, would want to tell her story. Mary was handled, get her rights, as if she were a miniature adult. Court officials made no effort to understand what could possibly have brought a child that age to such a point. Gitta vividly reminds us that the judicial system was dealing with someone who couldn't comprehend the seriousness of what she'd done. A policewoman told Gitta she was more concerned about her torn shoes than anything else. I tried to calm her, you know, talk to her quietly, and after a while she said that she was frightened she'd wet the bed. I usually do, she said. Once sentenced, Mary was sent first to a juvenile institution, where she was for most of the time the only girl, and where she developed a trusting relationship with the director. But toward the end of her stay, she was sexually assaulted by a staff member. At 16, she was sent to a women's prison, where treatment consisted of occasional group therapy and the administration of tranquilizers. From prison, Mary wrote to friends that the absolute enormity of my crime has suddenly dawned on me that I've actually taken a life. I just can't bear to hardly think of it. I know too in my heart of hearts that I couldn't do such an awful thing on purpose. I can't remember exactly what happened. Mary was released from prison, HM Prison Axum Grange, in May of 1980 at the age of 23, after serving almost 11 and a half years in custody. She was granted anonymity, including a new name, allowing her to start a new life elsewhere in the country under this assumed identity. Upon her release, a spokesman is quoted as saying, Mary wishes to be given a chance to live a normal life and be left alone. Four years after her release from custody on May 25, 1984, Belle gave birth to a daughter. This would prove to be her only child. Mary has allegedly returned to Tyneside on several occasions in the years following her release. By all appearances, Craig Chandler Price was a teenage football player with a baby face and winsome smile who lived with his parents in a small ranch house in the Buttonwood section of town. He had been in minor trouble for petty burglaries, but nobody knew the chilling secrets harbored beneath that baby face he wore like a mask. Craig was 13 years old when he committed murder for the first time. On July 27, 1987, in the city of Warwick, Rhode Island, Craig broke into the home of 27-year-old Rebecca Spencer, a neighbor to Craig who lived only two houses from the Price house. Apparently, Craig had peeped on Rebecca several times before that night. Once inside, Craig used a kitchen knife to stab Rebecca 58 times and killed her. It wasn't until two years later, when Craig was a freshman in high school, that Craig decided to kill again. On September 1st, 1989, Craig was high on marijuana and LSD when he began his final killing spree. He stabbed 39-year-old Joan Heaton 57 times, her 10-year-old Jennifer 62 times, and Joanne's 8-year-old daughter Melissa was stabbed 30 times and her skull was crushed. Craig stabbed with so much force that he broke the handles of the knives that he used to murder the Heaton family and the blades were left in the victims' bodies. Joan had bought those very kitchen knives earlier that day. The FBI were brought in to investigate the similarities between the Heaton family murder and the murder of Rebecca Spencer, but it was a detective who realized Craig was the killer. Police became suspicious of Craig after he lied about a deep gash on his finger. They knew from the crime scene that the killer had cut himself. A bloody sock print matched Craig's size 13 feet. Police even found the knives in his backyard shed. 
After his arrest, Craig was asked for a motive, and he said the first time he wished death on others was when a group of white people yelled racist remarks from a car as they tried to run him over. Since Craig was charged as a juvenile, he knew the law was on his side, and he would be released from the Youth Correctional Center when he turned 21. So, as Craig was led from the courthouse in handcuffs, he yelled out to the crowd, When I get out, I'm going to smoke a bomber. The Assistant Attorney General, Jeffrey Pine, said, There was simply something fundamentally wrong with a system that allowed someone who killed four people to simply go free at 21. Detective Kevin Collins, who assisted with the confession of Craig, vowed to do everything in his power to prevent Craig from ever walking free. Although, Craig's violent streak did not end once he was arrested. Due to his violent tendencies, Craig was transferred from a prison in Rhode Island to a prison in Florida. By March of 2009, his parole was denied and his release date was pushed back to May of 2022. On July 29, 2009, Craig was involved in a fight with a fellow inmate and Craig stabbed a correctional officer in the finger with a handmade shiv during the fight. After the incident, Craig was transferred to the Sewanee Correctional Institution in Live Oak, Florida. Due to the brutality of Craig's crimes and the opinion of state psychologists that he is a poor candidate for rehabilitation, a group called Citizens Opposed to the Release of Craig Price was formed to lobby for his continued imprisonment. This turned out to be unnecessary, since Craig's continued pattern of violence has only added to his sentence. On January 18, 2019, Craig was sentenced to 25 years for stabbing fellow inmate Joshua Davis with a 5-inch homemade knife on the date of April 4, 2017. Despite all this, Craig maintains that he has paid his debt to society and that he is being held in jail partially due to racism. Amarjeet Sada, sometimes referred to as Amardeep Sada, is the world's youngest known serial killer, having committed three murders at the age of eight. Amarjeet was born in 1998 to an impoverished family in India. His father is a laborer in the village of Mushari. In 2006, Amarjeet murdered his six-month-old cousin, the daughter of a maternal uncle. Shortly after, he murdered his own eight-month-old sister. While Amarjeet's family and some villagers were aware of the child's involvement in these two murders, they were considered family matters and went unreported. In 2007, Amarjeet killed again, this time a neighbor's six-month-old daughter named Kushbu. Kushbu's mother, Chunchun Devi, left her daughter at the village's primary school to sleep while she tended to her chores. When she returned, her daughter was gone. Villagers who knew of Amarjeet's past murders confronted him regarding Kushbu's disappearance. Amarjeet, seemingly proud of his actions, happily recounted the gory tale of how he killed the infant. He then led villagers to the shallow grave he had dug for Kushbu. Amarjeet told police, I killed her by beating her with a brick. He told police he'd laid her down in the grass before beginning to smash her face with a brick, then covered the body in grass and leaves before returning to his home. Reportedly, all three murders were conducted in this manner. It's believed he also strangled his two previous victims, which may have been the cause of death prior to beating with a brick. Unfortunately, because his first two murders went unreported and there were no official investigations into them. Details remain unclear. Police say he said he took the children to the fields and hit them with a stone and killed them. He's been charged with the murder of Kushbu Devi. Amarjeet was arrested on May 30th, 2007, and it's said he spoke little but smiled a lot when asked about the murders. While being further questioned, he just smiled a lot and asked for cookies. 
Superintendent Amit Loda said Amarjeet Sada appeared to be a psychiatric case. He was evaluated by professionals and found to be suffering from a conduct disorder. Psychoanalyst Shamshad Hussein found that this conduct disorder caused Amarjeet to behave in a sadistic manner due to a severe chemical imbalance in Sada's brain. A psychiatrist working in this case explained such aggravation may be hereditary and may be caused because of great chemical upheavals in the brain. According to a former psychology professor at Patna University, Sada did not have a sense of right and wrong when he committed the murders due to his conduct disorder. It is believed with medications, levels of chemicals in his brain can be balanced. Ultimately, the boy was charged with murder and tried as a juvenile. Sada's story has lost steam for most of the world after that point, so there is not much information available on what became of him. Although Amarjeet's current status is unknown, we can assume from his graphic and proud confession he was eventually charged with the murder. Since the boy was tried as a juvenile in accordance to Indian law, he could not have been imprisoned any longer than three years. Due to his mental state at the time the crimes took place, it is possible he served his sentence in a psychiatric institute in lieu of a juvenile detention center. After his sentence had been served, it is also possible that his parents chose to keep him in a mental health facility. However, considering they did not seek mental health for him after either of the first two murders, it's unlikely he received more therapy than was required. Amarjeet Sada would be approximately 17 years old now. No exact date of birth is available, only a birth year. And more likely than not, he is a free man. There are rumors he may have changed his name to Samarjeet, which is common when young children commit a horrendous crime and are later rehabilitated. Hopefully, Amarjeet Sada has been and will continue to be able to manage his conduct disorder through therapy and medication and live a new life under a new name. Thank you for joining us on this season of Hook Switch Hotline. Subscribe today because we'll be back very soon with much more shocking true crimes.